0: We are here at 11FS headquarters in London. We work for episode 2 of Blockchain Insider. Thank you so much to everybody who made our first ever show a giant success. As we speak right now, Blockchain Insider is number 14 in the UK business podcast chart. Thank you so much to everybody who's made that a success. On today's show, we talk governments getting into blockchain, the fear of missing out, now has its own coin. And later in the show, of course, we talk to William Moguillar, the author, expert, and speaker on all things tokens and blockchain. On with the news. Okay, and joining us for the news this week, we've got the return in Colin Platt. Colin, how are you, sir?
1: Do it very well.
2: Thanks,
0: Simon. Fantastic. And Maya Zahavi. Uh, Maya, thank you so much for being on the show this week.
2: My pleasure. Hello, everyone.
0: Guys, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, We've got a lot of stories and not a lot of time to get through. Um, So, Colin, first story up is a story in Coindesk about the People's Bank of China setting disclosure standards for initial coin offerings. What's going on here?
1: Yeah. So we've discussed token sales quite a bit on the show. So the People Bank of China, or the PBOC, is one of the major regulators in the central bank of China. Um, they've looked at uh, token sales, ICOs, as well as just basic cryptocurrencies and what that might do to things from monetary policy to uh, money leaving the country, which is very tightly controlled in China. Uh, they're very worried from the perspective of how this may hurt investors if they don't have sufficient uh, information before they invest or uh, if money could be lost or stolen, uh, or if this could negatively affect the economy. They put out a, a couple of different ideas, and this is just from one advisor inside the PBOC, uh, put out a couple of ideas in a local newspaper talking about different aspects that uh, investors need to worry about. They're looking at some of these first-day returns in excess of 10x uh, as soon as these things launch, and they're worried about what might happen when that excess liquidity dries up. If that's going to harm the people in China that are trying to invest and make money out of these for good reasons or bad reasons, they may be only speculative or they may be the beginnings of something new.
0: I think that's a really interesting point, Colin, because what we're seeing is uh, regulators really grappling with are these things something new and are retail vest- investors going to get hurt here? Um, and the fact that the the PBOC and others are now stepping into this space is interesting. Uh, Maya, are we seeing uh, the same outside of China? Or have you seen any other examples of this?
2: Yes, I think about a month ago, the FCA in uh, private discussions of blockchain that were was open to the press, they said that they're looking into how to regulate ICOs. And uh, the SEC also said they're looking into it. So it's pretty interesting that the first framework of how that would happen is actually starting and uh, is coming in from China.
0: Isn't it just? So, Colin, um, what do we think is actually going to happen here? Are we going to get uh, regulations in this space and it's going to become safe, or is it still kind of the, the wild, wild west? And, and what would what should we be doing? Um, should we be investing? Should we be diving in with both feet or, or taking sensible steps?
1: I think sensible steps is always a good approach. Um, I mean, this could really be anything from regulators coming in and putting in some high-level guidelines to any prospective ICOs that do want to sell into China, and it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of these ICO groups are quite international, um, thus hard to regulate from within China itself, and a lot of these have, have taken steps to translate their white papers, their documentation into Mandarin so that it's more accessible for investors even though they may be based in London or New York or Moscow or wherever. So it is something that they do.
0: I think that's the reality of where capital is coming from these days, right? You, you're finding that a lot of capital is coming out of Asia. And if what you're raising capital on the back of is a white paper, then your white paper needs to be in a local language. And you raise another interesting point, which is the sales of tokens are by default international. They're not as Obviously linked to the region they come from, as it would be with, with a traditional security or derivative instrument. Um, open to thoughts there.
2: I think it's really interesting that a lot of these companies are registered in one country, whereas all the people that um, identify themselves publicly on these white papers or so are usually residing somewhere completely different. And the fact that it's the, Chi- the PBOC that came out with these uh, regulatory rules of conduct, if you will, it's um, a sign that a lot of Chinese. Investment money is going into that, while as well, we're exposed to we see a lot of asset managers starting to buy in and hedge funds funded by Silicon Valley. Maybe that's not where a lot of the ICO money is right now, if it's the Chinese stepping up.
0: So Colin, are we seeing that the PBOC and China might be setting the pace of what future regulation is going to look like here?
1: So
2: far, China has been
1: really avant-garde in their thinking when compared to the US regulators or some of the other regulators around Western Europe. For, for good or bad, um, I think it wouldn't be surprising to see the likes of China and possibly Singapore uh, leading leading in what these regulations look like. Um, I think it's also worth, worth bearing in mind that um, they may not have the same feeling in every, in every country uh, because different regulators have different concerns and different approaches to these things. Uh, the other thing I'll just throw in there is uh, the PBC is not the only relevant regulator, uh, SAFE, the, the state agency for foreign exchange in China is uh, is very important in this as well because it is their responsibility to make sure that uh, there's not too much money sloshing in or out of the country at any point.
0: So, definitely one to watch. I've got to move us on, Colin, because there's another regulatory story here as these token sales come at us thick and fast. Uh, the story here, and again, Coindesk, uh, who've who filled us up with stories this week, is one where the CFTC has registered a company called Ledger X as a swap execution facilitator, who are the second company to get that type of registration from the CFTC. What is a swap execution facilitator?
1: Yeah, so we know these in the business colloquially as CEFs, S-E-Fs. What they are is very akin to an exchange like uh, the New York Stock Exchange or the London Stock Exchange, specifically for swaps. And what those are is they are financial instruments that tend to be um, long dated, which means they could last for 10 to 20 years. And they help one investor and uh, another investor, a speculator or a hedger, uh, lock in the price of something. So this could be generally interest rates. It could be the price of a commodity versus a fixed number generally. What this allows is for real big investors to come in a very regulated market and say, I want to trade the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum versus a payment, potentially of dollars or in sterling or any other major fiat currency and take that on as an investment inside of a very traditional portfolio. So these could be now opening doors to all kinds of new hedge funds. This could be opening up the doors to uh, potentially anybody that wants to receive Bitcoin on an ongoing basis as a, as a payment for goods and services.
0: I find this one interesting, Colin, because the CFTC seems to be kind of leading the way on, on a lot of the US front here, um, whereas you'd think it would be the SEC um, that would be most interested in, in what's happening. Maya, what do you think this really means? Does it mean that retail investors are going to get into this space? Does it mean that the institutional space is changing? Like, What does this actually mean?
2: Well, the fact that it is, the CFTC means it's not retail investors, right? It's more sophisticated investors that know how to hedge, know how to price, and are following this big rise in the returns that crypto had in the past six months. And they want in on the game, and they want to hedge it because of the volatility of, of the of the currencies. However, there there is still some point in terms of how are these uh, instruments going to be priced? How are they going to be evaluated? And is the cryptocurrency market mature enough for these uh, financial instruments? In, in as it's in itself. The other more interesting part, and you alluded to this, is the CFTC. I mean, they have been stepping up their game in the past three months. They have a new innovation lab. They're looking into blockchains, how to regulate it, how to play along with it, located in New York, meaning a ton of blockchain and crypto startups, and trying to see how they can work with that and what they can authorize and what framework they are going to need.
0: So I was talking to um, some senior folks in the industry earlier today over lunch and I was kind of suggesting that uh, the idea here that uh, they may be trying to look at um, kind of regular costs and efficiencies and trying to build slightly faster horses whilst actually what's just happened under the CFTC is somebody's driven a car onto their lot Um, because now you have regulated bodies by the CFTC, who are trading in crypto assets. And actually, if you're going to build a new asset class in future, would you build it as a crypto asset or a token, or would you build it as a traditional financial instrument? The genie may be out of the bottle here.
2: And what's really interesting about it is that the old market kind of respond to blockchain um, and try to implement all these blockchain strategies. And it might as well come from the crypto community bringing in new kinds of asset classes, pig to commodities, to futures, to equities, on the sly and just opening it up to hedge funds at first and not necessarily clearing houses and uh and and traditional banking
1: i was gonna say that said uh it's really interesting that um a lot of this is coming kind of from that outside community because it is a greenfield but it's worth noting that the cme is also taking a very keen interest in this as well as the the nasdaq and several other big uh market infrastructure firms so it's it's not solely the the wild west of hedge funds in the cayman islands or anywhere Uh, there is a lot of stuff happening across the market But it is really encouraging, I think, to see uh, cryptocurrencies in their own right, not just the blockchain technology being taken
0: seriously i, I would agree I, I think it's been very financial services heavy as this show from the start but i think actually it does touch every industry and if we can really find a, a way in which uh the financial services world moves from the old technology to the new rather than just trying to replace the old with something slightly newer uh, i think that sort of trojan horse of people just start adopting this new thing in the corner is is a possibility that a lot of people hadn't really considered but uh that's what i think this this story may mean um but in the more traditional space colin we did see that 22 banks joined swift's blockchain trial swift being the kind of organization of payment banks um sort of 19,000 banks in the world on the swift network i believe or or 100 and something i can't remember what the number is a lot of banks and this is for about improving reconciliation can you talk a little bit about the concept of of reconciliation and why banks might want to improve that
1: Yeah, so uh, the way that SWIFT and um, the uh, Correspondent Banking System works is is really odd, especially when you start to to grok the idea of what blockchains are. Um, So effectively, the way that money moves between, let's say, a bank in in the UK and a bank in Mongolia, is there may be three or four different steps before your money leaves London and ends up in Ulaanbaatar. What happens is effectively a bank with connections, let's say, between the UK and China Uh, receives money in one side and then ups their balance for a bank in Ulaanbaatar that's held inside of uh, Beijing. What they're looking at doing is is not necessarily replacing that entire system, which in itself sounds very complicated, and it is. Uh, They're talking about the messaging system, and that's actually where SWIFT is responsible. So although uh, SWIFT is much maligned amongst the blockchain and cryptocurrency community for operating this really weird correspondent banking system, what they are is just a secured message passing system. And they're talking about using these new technologies to say, I want to standardize my, the way that this message is sent from point A to point B rather than looking at the underlying thing. Now, that may come in time, but that's not necessarily what they're being looked at. So
0: it's interesting that they when we talked to Stefan Thomas, the CTO of Ripple last week, uh, I kind of described it to being like the banks are sending an email from party A to B, and then from B to C, and then C to D. But what we really need to be able to do is is copy everybody into the same email here for everybody to get the message and for everybody to know they've got that message and to see that everybody's read that message, which we kind of don't have in, in today's SWIFT world. Um, But Maya?
2: Well, I think that's really interesting because Swift and corresponding banking always has to use different transit banks in order to make the messages route, right? And Ripple is very similar in that sense that it's not really a decentralized blockchain. However, we've been looking and seeing that even the design of the blockchains themselves, if you want to send assets from one person to another and all the corresponding data, it always is going to come into incoming, outgoing messaging system via the blockchain. What that standard is, you're going to need um, an entity like SWIFT in order to be able to reconcile what the standards are. So this is a very welcome approach. I just think it's very initial. There's still a long way to go. And notice that this is fabric.
0: Indeed, it's it's definitely using the kind of more conservative versions of the flavors of blockchain that are out there. And it's definitely something where it's it's focusing on potentially more in that faster horse category than in the, the truly revolutionary side. But maybe that's what makes it credible. Maybe that's what means that everybody will adopt it. And maybe that's what uh, means uh, it has a chance. And I think this is the, an interesting position we find ourselves in that the two sides could converge. The
2: question is whether this is going to be one of those Beta VHS discussions in terms of standards on messaging on blockchain? Um, Is it going to be whatever most of the financial institutions agrees to? Or just like we were talking earlier about um, the CFTC, is it going to be just something from the outside greenfield innovation that is going to take off? And that's the part where all the
0: i think if i'm in a bank i'm more worried about the greenfield stuff um, because that's the thing you don't know about um and that actually trying to do kind of the efficiency stuff is is you know a really easy business case to make but looking outside of that field of view um you you definitely get some fear of missing out and uh i want to finish on a story here about fear of missing out because this is uh something that we saw this week there was the launch of fomo coin fomo for the uninitiated is the uh acronym for fear of missing out out and FOMO coin is a 100% I think uh, spoof coin uh, designed for people uh, really as a commentary on what we're seeing in the whole token sale cryptocurrency space to say that a lot of people have been rushing into the space and we could launch any old coin and people would buy it Um, and yet another uh, initial coin offering is live get it before it's too late with the uh, countdown to when it goes live and it seems like they've already received some money I mean what What are your thoughts on this one, Colin? I I found this one quite funny.
1: A lot of these things have been very new, unique. We're getting some great ideas that wouldn't necessarily have seen the light of day before. And not all of them will succeed. But the the sums that are going into this are just enormous. And although we may be losing more money in high-profile collapses of unicorns, a lot of these are going into companies that have maybe two or three people who maybe have never even met before in real life. Uh, just set up a website and go out and raise up 10, 20, 50, 100 million dollars. Um, this is this is kind of tongue in cheek capitalizing on that. And a lot of people come in uh, just to laugh at these things and say, sure, I'll throw you 10 dollars. Um, and that's how they get a ton of money. I mean, there was another one that came out called the uh, useless Ethereum token. UET. Josh Cincinnati a few weeks ago came out with a Ponzi ICO. Uh, a lot of people are capitalizing on the fact that they don't really see the value in a lot of these things. And it's true, as I said before, not all of them are going to be unicorns. But it's it's silly to see where this has taken us in life. And um, I think a lot of people who have been in this from the early stages when the big projects were raising two, three, four, five million um, outside of Ethereum, which itself raised only 20 million, only 20 million, um, and was a very developed project as an ICO it's crazy to see where this world has gone. And this could be the start of something new or it could be a bubble and we'll see.
2: I think the original FOMO coin was Dodgecoin on MasterCoin back in 2014. I mean, we've been through this cycle before um, and I think it's just gotten more and more ridiculous in the last couple of weeks. There was an, one ICO that literally their white paper was an academic paper that they haven't even written. They just literally copy pasted it. Um, I think there's a group out in Asia that just their websites with the same advisors just pop up every couple of weeks. The websites look the same. And this does have scam written all over it, it, despite the fact that there are some legit projects. And uh, I find it terrifying.
1: I'll, I'll throw it in there, Maya. There are companies out there that now will set up everything you need, a turnkey solution for an ICO. So you go and pay them 200 bitcoins. And they will launch and do everything to help you raise 10,000 Bitcoins, whatever it is.
2: The one thing this system is missing is, despite the fact that we've been talking about how Greenfield is, it's pretty amazing that the community, the crypto community, hasn't come up with a third party to kind of assess what these projects are, who these people are, who their advisors, what is really um, in the white paper, how much of it is feasible beyond different Twitter rants. And I think we've been starting to see some more established initiatives in this sense from consensus on one hand. And some Microsoft and Deloitte partnership looking to audit ICOs.
0: That that um, auditor standards, best practice kind of space is definitely evolving. And I know when we speak to William later, we'll have some thoughts on that. But you're right. I've spoken to a number of folks who fear that ordinary people on the retail side are getting burned, Um, but also institutional capital is now coming into this space and can't tell a good ICO from a bad ICO because they've all got funny names. Uh, They've all got a white paper, and it's all speaking gobbledygook. Like how do i know what i'm investing in here i need to know who to trust um, and the traditional auditors and legal firms are definitely seeing an opportunity here and i think there are some good examples of that being done right uh guys i've got to call this one to a close we're up against it on time uh, really appreciate you being with us here on uh blockchain insider for another week colin where can people find out more about what you do
1: uh twitter colin g platts
0: Fantastic. And Maya, where can people find out more about you and what you do?
2: QED-IT.com or Twitter at Mayazi.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, Coming up, we are speaking to William Moygayar. So we are back and I am joined by Mr. Token Sale, Mr. Blockchain, William Moygayar. How are you, sir?
3: Hi, Simon. Good to be here.
0: Great to have you on the show. Um, You and I have been uh, kind of involved in this space for for quite some time. But uh, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about who you are, what's your background, how you got into this whole space.
3: Sure. So I've been in technology for the last 35 years and working both at big companies and starting my own. I was founder three times. And in terms of the blockchain, I had a taste of uh, peer-to-peer technology in its first rendition. In 2000, 2001, as you recall, we had the first generation with file sharing. At the time, I was running a site called Peer Intelligence, and it was just all about music sharing uh, mostly. And then we had to wait a good eight to nine years until the Bitcoin paper came along. As far as my involvement with the blockchain uh, recently, That started at the end of 13 when I met Vitalik at the time he was finishing the paper. And I had heard of Bitcoin in 2012, but I was busy running my last startup, Engage You, at the time, and I've kind of ignored it. During the internet years, I also wrote another book called Opening Digital Markets in 97. And the reason why I left Hewlett Packard in 95 was specifically because I saw the internet as this uh, big catalyst for reengineering a lot of the businesses. And when I saw the blockchain in 2013, uh, I realized that we have another internet on our hands here uh, that was going to be very important in terms of what it's going to change business-wise. So I started to immerse myself into learning the technology. I got, I got more excited obviously when I learned that there was something called blockchain behind Bitcoin. When I first heard about what was going on, I thought of it as a cryptocurrency. That wasn't too exciting on its own but the technology behind it is really as we all know today and it's obvious uh, that is really the the biggest story i
0: completely agree we hear a lot of people talking about the third uh, incarnation of the internet web 3.0 and and these sorts of things you know if web 2.0 was was facebook and amazon web 3.0 is is really the, the, the next generation that comes kind of after that so so where do you think we're at in the evolution of blockchain dlt But given your experience in the internet kind of revolution, are we, are we there yet? (laughs) If I can be the kid in the back of the car briefly.
3: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've said, I mean, we were still early and you could almost wind the clock back 20 years almost to the day. And some people will argue, yeah, plus or minus, but I think we're probably at 19 in 1997, more or less. Not a lot of big companies have jumped onto the blockchain bandwagon in a, in a serious way. There's lots of experimentation at the enterprise levels, as you well know. Obviously, you've come from that background. But I'm talking about the big financial players. Uh, I'm waiting to hear uh, big players like uh, the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and others really jumping both feet uh, into it. Right now, they have a toe in uh, or a little bit of interest. But I'm waiting to hear uh, those big exchanges, for example, allowing a cryptocurrency to be there as a as an asset. I mean, I want to see a recognition of the fact that the crypto asset is not this beast. Uh, it is something that is just another asset that is recognized, and and I think that would be a turning moment as we see bigger players uh, get into it
0: completely we've seen uh, paper assets paper contracts for centuries and now we have these native digital assets and they in a lot of ways behave quite different in a lot of ways they're quite new to a nasdaq or a london stock exchange or a deutsche balls etc um, but they could be really really exciting in, in a whole bunch of ways um, so you use the term kind of crypto assets uh, we've talked about token sales a lot on the show i really appreciate your definition of a Crypto asset and a a token sale because I think you've been in this space for a little while. Um, You've got, I think, a very clear uh, mental model of of what that looks like.
3: Sure, crypto asset I think comes in two flavors. One is a value, uh, something that has value that has been created on the blockchain, meaning that it lives on the blockchain as opposed to in a database. Traditionally, everything we do has a representation on a database somewhere that a bank owns or somebody owns that can point to it and says, Hey, here, this is it. Somebody owns this and this is the value for it. So a, a crypto asset is, is, is that new type of value representation that instead of being on a database is on a blockchain. The second aspect, the second variation on that is something that already exists, but that has a, a proxy or that has a a link up to a blockchain where we recognize that this value exists in the real world. But what if we were able to have a linkage uh, that would live on the blockchain that, that would be an accurate representation of that asset? And the reason why we're doing that is because blockchains are going to be a lot more efficient in terms of the transaction power that they give us. A lot more efficient than databases. Every time you send or receive a transaction that starts with a database, in more cases than none, there will be many hands touching it in the middle. There will be many databases that have to synchronize with each other. And the blockchain's promise is that we all are synchronized from the beginning because the ledger is shared by everybody. So that, that I think, is a very important aspect. Chaining into the token sale, I mean, the token is another representation of value. Uh, but now it is tied into a business model. So the idea is, uh, what if we empowered users to be compensated for actions that they accomplish as part of a marketplace, as part of a product, as part of a service? Uh, so this is something that, We've maybe the closest thing that we've had to it maybe was uh, loyalty points uh, or co-op uh, institutions where the members also are recipients of the benefits. But now we are taking it to another level where we can imagine that the benefits that accrue from a network or from a marketplace can be now shared by, by all of the participants and not just by a central force that uh, takes all of the profits and leaves the users with uh, just them giving stuff but not getting it back. And uh, the example that I give a lot is that of of Facebook, for example, where if you think about it, we give our attention to Facebook on a daily basis. The average user spends an hour a day on Facebook. We give them our attention. What do they give us back in return? that is monetary, nothing. They take our attention and they monetize it via advertising that they resell and they make the bucks. But we are not making anything. And there are many, many jobs, many places that we are spending time or doing some kind of work. And Alvin Toffler was the first person that coined this term as the third job. We all have had third jobs in the past 10 years, the first job being one uh, that you currently have where you get a paycheck for, the second job being taking care of yourself, of your family, of your house, doing the dishes, cleaning. And the third job is the job that others have given to us, whether it's online mostly, where you're booking a ticket or spending time on Facebook or writing content uh, that others want you to do, but we haven't been paid for that job. And the blockchain with the model of the token can give us the opportunity now to get compensated in a more equitable way for the, the, the that third job that we have been doing anyways
0: super interesting so basically it's almost like having if we organized amongst ourselves to drive each other and we had an economic model for us to be able to drive for each other and have a mini taxi service instead of there being uber in the middle of it it's just the software and the economics that are in the middle of it and it's truly decentralized in the way that um, bitcoin or um, BitTorrent and the file sharing used to be um, but there's no middle person taking out the majority of the profit so it's more equitable. I I think that's an interesting concept. But you know the token sales space is is extremely hot right now uh it's getting a lot of press it's getting a lot of attention you've been on cnbc and all over the news there's also a lot of people worrying about uh you know it not being done right are the regulators going to come in is there a way to do token sales right are people doing them wrong and and can that can there be such a model for for selling these tokens and and doing so in a way that protects users and, and everybody involved
3: sure so we're seeing the whole gamut of the ways of doing token sales. It will be a bit presumptuous to for me to say, this is right, this is wrong. I mean, there are excesses right now that have taken place. And like any technological revolution, there will be excesses before we realize what is normal, uh, what is uh, perceived to be a best practice and what is not one area of an uh, excess that i'm seeing is in raising too much money so i'm i'm still not able to grapple in my head why does a company uh, a startup need to raise so much money i mean everybody is running on the best case scenario everybody is running on the fact that everything is going to be great everything is going to be Every, Everybody is going to get millions of users, and it's going to be a great decentralized world. But the reality is that that's not the way it's going to happen. All of these ICOs are startups. At the end of the day, they are all the small companies that still have to prove that they can not only build a product – but that, that that they can get it adopted by users and by developers. And that takes a lot of time. There's no escaping the natural laws of a startup evolution. And that takes time. And that takes the unfortunate truth that many of them will not succeed. Uh, I want to say one more thing about the tokens, because one area that uh, I'm seeing a little bit of slippage here is that a token is starting to get used... You know, when, 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 typically when a word becomes pop, very popular, then it starts to lose its meaning. It starts to get used, abused, and misused. And right now the token is being used in a way To incentivize users in, in some of the recent token sales, when you look at the token distribution, which is one of the data points to look at, which is how they will distribute the tokens between uh, the fundraiser sale versus uh, how much they keep to themselves, how much do they keep in reserves and what they, what they do with them, with those tokens. One uh, big slice of the pie is that I'm seeing recently is to incentivize users, but uh, there is a, a nuance between incentivizing users and bribing them. So a token is not a short-term carrot. It's it's not a bribe that you can give users. If you have a bad product, if you have a service that's not going to stick, yes, you can bribe anybody to try something once or twice with a token, but will they come back? So you have to be very careful in not using the token as, uh, as as a bribe too early before you you find out that you have a, a market fit for the product, and and that could be another. That's one of the risk factors. That's one of the blind spots that we can run into. Uh, imagine a company has set aside a bunch of tokens to incentivize users, and they they issue them and they give them to users. Users come in, they transact service once or twice, and then never come back. And and that would be.
0: You know that yeah. makes complete sense. That makes complete sense, William, that you could potentially see people um, buying these tokens purely for profit, which I think we see a lot of. Uh, we see people buying the tokens and dumping them shortly after they've been raised. Um, and we see people raising lots of money without necessarily a plan or, or any guarantee of quality of product. Um, and now I'm starting to see people saying, well, okay, we're actually going to raise this, uh, this lump of, of cash up front, and then we're going to drip feed that cash out of a foundation that will hold the funds that we've raised to an operating company and that operating company is allowed to build the the next stage of the product if that product reaches certain milestones if not something philanthropic will happen with the money or there'll be some governance model wrapped around what happens with the money because you can see that regulators and investors would say i'm buying this thing based on that i think the price is going to go up but am i buying this thing because i actually think i'm going to use the service in the future and i'm going to need those tokens i always think of them as being like fairground tokens or like passes you can take this little token and then you can you can uh, go on one of the rides at disney world but actually if i buy it now it's 10 percent of the cost of what it would be in a year's time so buying a whole bunch of them now makes complete sense but if the ride at disneyland never gets built then what's the point in my token
3: that's correct at this point in time valuations are far ahead of value. And there is a fuzziness between the actual usage and the utility of the token in reality, because the reality always comes later. Right now, again, we are running on a lot of optimism and on the best case scenario that everything is going to be great. Another risk factor that I'm sensing here is at some point in time, there is a lockup period that expires. See, a lot of these ICOs, a big part of the funding has has been coming from uh, from other hedge funds or wealthy investors, and in many cases, the pre-sales have a lockup period. A lockup period being anywhere from six months to twelve months, typically. Uh, so you have to watch for when does this lockup period expire, <laughs> because I can tell you for a fact, all of these funds are looking for a profit and they will start to sell a part of uh, what they've invested as soon as the lockup periods are able to give them the liquidity that they are looking for. So, this is why right now there's not a lot of transparency into uh, when these lockup periods expire, but you can pretty much kind of go six months ahead after the sale has happened and assume. That there will be a dip in the, those prices, unless the ICO is doing some great work, and that, that, that there are buyers that come in to the rescue, and and buy those tokens. Um, so right now, there's not lots of transparency in figuring this out. And uh, I have an initiative that I'm working on uh, that I'm very close to uh, to talking about uh, to, to releasing. Where there, there will be more transparency uh, in terms of knowing exactly what these companies are doing, I think it's going to complement what's already uh, out there. It, it's, it's very difficult to go and find out the uh, the information. I mean, I, I I I I just spent the last few days. Um, I, I knew that June, for example, I'll give you a data point that I'm going to blog about uh, later today. I I was I knew that June of 2017 was a turning point in terms of the total, the total token, token sales. sales. So I took it up on myself to find out how I wanted to know how much was raised in June specifically. And it took me hours and hours. I just completed this last evening. Uh, and finally, I have that count. And nobody had done this uh, in a very thorough manner. Uh, so the count for June is $566 million have been raised in ICOs by 34 companies. So I said earlier on, at one point in time, we're going to have one a day. So we're now at the point where we have more than one a day. So before it was like one every week, one a month before that. So at this point in time, the headlines are still there for when an ICO happens. But pretty soon, we're going to have two a day and three a day and five a day, and it won't be the headline anymore. And I think we're heading to that point.
0: I think that's uh, exactly right, William. You, there's there's so much happening here. It's happening so fast. And it's very different to the traditional venture capital route where you would get a small amount of money and if you did okay, you'd get a little bit amount of money. I, I know you've been speaking to West Coast VCs Quite a bit, and and what do you think their take on this space is? Is this an alternative funding model by the geeks for the geeks? Is it um, something that they see as as a threat to their model? Can it be a threat? Should it be a threat to their model?
3: Today, the majority of their VCs, by virtue of their limited partnership agreements that they are bound to, cannot invest in ICOs, cannot invest in cryptocurrency directly. So they're all bound by these agreements they have with their limited partners who really fund them. And nowhere in there does it say anything about cryptocurrency. Now, some of the very progressive uh, VCs, and you can count them on one hand, uh, have been able to to get around that by investing in other funds that invest in uh, cryptocurrencies. So I'm seeing a number of New funds, today, they start out as hedge funds, and some of them are calling themselves crypto asset funds. I'm seeing a lot of them, and we're, we're talking dozens, uh, probably under 100 over, over the next year, uh, will just be focused on cryptocurrency. So right now, the VCs are not in the forefront uh, of, the, of this investment. Uh, they have been caught a little bit uh, behind it, and they are trying to wonder what to do with it. And and how to get involved. Now, another way to get involved is to invest in a company in the pre-ICO stage where the company goes and raises a token later on, and the token becomes an asset for that company. So if I'm an owner of a company, then by virtue of that fact, I'm a recipient and a beneficiary uh, of of their asset appreciation when that happens. So it's kind of an indirect way of seeing your money appreciate uh, in, in that way. And we're seeing that happen not just with blockchain companies. We're seeing, and we're going to see more of that, happen with companies that did not have anything to do with blockchain, like the case of KIK, K-I-K, KIK, which is a, a messenger uh, that teenagers use and they have more than 200 million users. And they have nothing to do with blockchain, but they recently announced that they are creating a token called KIN, K-I-N, Uh, which will be the token that their users will use uh, to lubricate their usages inside of their marketplace. And uh, I predict we're going to see more and more traditional companies uh, buying into the token model.
0: I think we will too. And I think it's pretty interesting that, uh, that yeah, as you say, it's not just financial services that are in this token space. It's not just people going after that. It's people building real services. I look at uh, services like Steemit uh, by the guys behind uh, now behind EOS and BitShares where uh, individual contributors are uh, kind of creating new stories, almost like on Huffington Post. People can write their own stories, but they get directly compensated with micropay. Payments um, from a currency called uh, Steam Dollars, and that currency is printed and minted every day. And there's a market buying and selling those things to create liquidity, kind of in that space. There's there's some really interesting business models once you start diving into how the individual tokens work. But uh, talk me through like the life cycle of a of a of a token sale. We see people talking about pre-sales. We talk about the traditional blockchains and ICOs. We talk about the, the challenges of it. What what is the life cycle for a, a token sale look like if if I'm going to do that and kind of where should um the landscape start to evolve and, and who are the competing ones because we're seeing not everybody does the same type of token sale Tezos would look different to EOS that would look different to Ethereum so talk me through the life cycle and talk me through some of the competing uh, approaches that we're seeing
3: Sure It still ranges uh, in terms of uh, ways to do it and best practices. Uh, We're not there yet in terms of standardization. Uh, There is an emergence of a new segment, and again, this is an upcoming blog post that I'm going to write, a new segment uh, uh, called ICO Service Providers. I think it was hinted upon in the news uh, segment just a few minutes ago. And uh, we are seeing uh, the... uh, landscape uh, emerge in terms of companies that can help you do an ICO. And uh, in some cases, it's a turnkey uh, process. And some others, uh, they just do one aspect of it. But in a nutshell, there's a financial aspect, which is how do I get the money? How do I get the tokens to be generated? And how do I get that into uh, my wallets or my uh, number of wallets? And and that is becoming a little bit more standardized. So there's not a whole lot there uh, that is uh, be, is too much rocket science or too difficult. Uh, however, I'm still uh, amazed by the creativity uh, that some of these latest ICOs uh, keep uh, thinking of in terms of ways to do it, whether uh, it's a capped sale, meaning that uh, they put a market cap, uh, a maximum market value on it, or whether it's an uncapped sale or whether uh, it's a one-time deal, meaning that we just issue a number of tokens and we raise once, or whether we raise again in a year, or in the case of EOS, they raise every month. I mean, it's all over the place. And in a way, it's kind of confusing. Uh, if It's confusing if the terms are different. And in the long term, uh, yes, it speaks um, to the fact that uh, entrepreneurs are creative. But if you're a recipient, if you're a buyer, Uh, You have to decipher uh, each sale and figure out whether the terms are favorable or not favorable. Uh, And uh, that's an area that I think hopefully will normalize going forward. So then once you figure out the finance aspect, then you have to figure out the legal aspects. And what we are seeing a lot of here is many of these companies have a dual uh, jurisdictional uh, structure. Uh, one being in a place where they started, uh, it could be in Canada, could be US or anywhere in the world. But then what gets tricky now is where is the jurisdiction, uh, of the foundation? The foundation is a quote unquote a, a word, uh, that is used uh, modeled after the Ethereum foundation, which kind of started that trend. And they realized uh, there was, there was this little county in, in Switzerland called Zouk that had a very progressive um, set of uh, governors there that allowed cryptocurrency-based organizations to to be incorporated. So they are kind of like the Delaware, uh, in US-speak terms, Uh, they are like the Delaware of the cryptocurrency world. But they're not the only ones. I mean, Singapore has done a very good job as well recently to attract these ICOs in terms of where the uh, crypto jurisdiction is going to be. Uh, based. I mean, they want to be in, they need to be in, in, in places that are friendly to these jurisdictions. So once you figure out the legal aspects and the finance aspects, then you have to figure out uh, the role of the token. And this is something that sometimes is uh, overlooked, at least uh, from a thoroughness perspective. And uh, I've written at length at that. I call it tokenomics. And uh, you have to really have a very clear view about the token usage and its value and its utility. And yeah, at the beginning, it's a theory and you have to prove it and you have to iterate on it in the same way that startups iterate on their products. So now the problem here is that uh, you have to iterate on your product and you have to iterate on the token usage. So that leads to the other aspect of a successful ICO, which is the product itself. And sometimes it starts with a with a white paper. It, it means that the product may or may not have been developed yet. And sometimes the white paper it comes at the same time as an early product. But then that's a that becomes very important. And sometimes it's it's an alpha product or a beta product because the company did not have the money to uh, hire engineers. Um, I've seen Icos raise money with two people only. So then now you have to talk about creating a company. You have to talk about hiring people and, and how you will just get back to work and develop the product and put it in the hands of users. And that can take a year to two years. And that's the part that a lot of companies underestimate. I mean, Ethereum did not happen over, overnight. It's, it's, been, it's been in the works for, uh, for a good three years.
0: Yeah, Ethereum took a little while and it's, it's been successful, but it's also definitely seeing its scaling challenges, which we see with every VC-funded product, right? I mean, this is not a, a, a thing that's immune or uh, something that you don't see in, in other sectors. But uh, yeah, just because you've raised the money doesn't mean that the battle's won, but usually raising the money is something you do after the product. So now um, there's a whole bunch of things you need to, to think about, as you point out there, about what jurisdiction is going to be best, what structure your company needs to be, how's your, I love the term tokenomics, the idea of that you've really got to think about the economics of how your token is going to incentivize users, build a market. That's something that people building products just haven't had to engage with before. And then lastly, of course, you're thinking about um, how do you make that um, product successful and gain adoption so that this amount of money that you've raised actually pays back investors and uh, that you've not just kind of walked away uh, having having taken a load of money and not delivered anything. Um, William, I think I've got to ask you the final question because we're up against it on time. Surely we're in a bubble right now. Surely it's 1996 all over again, and we're going to see pets.com, and we're going to see all kinds of, of bodies on the floor. Do, do you think we're in a bubble?
3: Well, <laughs> we, the thing with the bubble is that you won't know you're in it until it happens, and you're going to look in the rear view mir- mirror and say, well, yeah, this just happened. The bubble is not going to give any warnings that – hey, now it's going to be, uh, something's going to happen next week. So it's going to happen uh, either via a uh, an event of some sort or via a, um, a dwindling of the value of all of these cryptocurrencies. But this kind of follows the model of uh, uh, Carlota Perez, which she talks about the fact that All of the technological revolutions go through two phases, the installation phase and the deployment phase. And the installation phase is the early phase when the technology is just being installed and and played with. And then the deployment is when everybody starts to adopt it. But in between, there is a crash that happens and there is a reset because we don't know necessarily what the boundaries are coming into it. We need to push uh, all the limits that are possible uh, in terms of what can we do with the blockchain what can we do with tokens before we realize what we cannot do with it uh, in a way the the, to- the the bubble will be a, a good thing that will happen uh, wh- whenever it bursts because when it bursts it's it's going to to flush out uh, the trifecta of bad things. The bad actors, the bad ideas, and the bad companies will all be flushed out and and will be gone. And then we're going to understand and realize uh, what we can do. And then I see a lot of prosperity uh, after that. And um, if you'd ask me when, it, it's impossible. It's difficult to 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 time it. But if I were to take a guess, I would say any time between the next eight months to fourteen months, we could expect uh, something to to reset itself here.
0: A super interesting prediction, because, um There's definitely going to be a, a storm before the calm comes back. And uh, hopefully, we, we saw exactly the same with the dot com crash um, and we saw a lot of productivity. But I often ask people would you rather be uh, involved in dot com before uh, 1996 and, and have uh, kind of knowledge of what Amazon were doing? Or would you want to wait until uh, 2004, 2005 when it looked like a no brainer? And I think um, there's always risk with being early, but there's a lot of excitement too. Uh, William, thank you so much for being with us on uh, the second ever episode of Blockchain Insider. Where can people find out more about who you are and and what you do?
3: Sure. So I blog on a regular basis at startupmanagement.org slash blog. And I tweet all the time at uh, W-M-O-U-G-A-Y-A-R. So it's W-M-O-U-G-A-Y-A-R on Twitter or startupmanagement slash blog for blogging.
0: William, thank you so much for being with us on the show this week. What a fantastic interview. Thank you very, very much. And a big thank you to all of our guests today. Um, Thank you very much to you as well for listening. If you like what you heard please do subscribe to our podcast leave us a review on itunes tell your friends colleagues and everyone you can get your hands on to listen to we're going to have more blockchain insider shows coming at you soon and check out 11fs.com if you want to know anything about the team who bring you blockchain insider every week but for now goodbye